This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When the day is done, many people park their cars and retreat into their homes. For Diane Coyce, her Jeep Compass is home. So at the end of the evening, I usually, that's when I make my decision on where to park for the night to sleep. I try to stay, you know, within areas where I won't be noticed, um, but I also want to be close enough to either a house or a business in case I need somebody. So I have blackout curtains for the sides of my car. So I shut the car off, I lock the doors, I climb in the back, I hang my blackout curtains on both sides, and then I climb into bed. And she says she sleeps like a baby. About six weeks ago, Diane Coyce made the decision to live in her SUV. It's not that she lost her job or was kicked out of her place. She actually makes a nice living. People who embrace this lifestyle call themselves rubber tramps. There's no census taken of them, but it's enough of a thing that there are how-to videos online. You're going to be scared. You're going to get lonely. You're going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be cold. You're going to be frustrated. It's inevitable. Part of the mentality, I would say, is being open to meeting strangers, but also at the same time, you know, stranger danger. That is from a woman who calls herself Hobo Alley. Here in Colorado, Diane Coyce says she's never been happier, and she has no immediate plans to return to traditional housing. Diane, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. How did you decide to live this way? Well, I had a few things happen in the last year. All three of my children left home, and I was coming upon the end of my lease of my three-bedroom, three-bath condo, and my dream was to build a tiny home and kind of live off-grid. And so I got to thinking, what's the quickest way from point A to point B? And that's when I started looking into this lifestyle, and I realized that um, that was going to be a viable choice for me uh, to save my money, uh, to not pay rent, utilities, um, and and ultimately uh, get myself out of the house and off the couch, no more kids, and have an adventure. Have an adventure. So is this purely about the experience? Is it about saving money? Is it about debt? Uh, the high cost of housing? I don't know. It's about all of it. Um, I looked at, you know, the, the cost of living now in Denver has gotten, you know, getting kind of crazy. And it's not that I can't go afford a place. I just realized that I have all these goals. I, you know, I want my tiny home. Um, I don't want to sit on my couch and, and feel bad because I miss my children and I am a single person. To me, that was the, the best choice. So it's about paying off debt. It's about reaching my goal and about adventure altogether. How much money are you saving by doing this? I am saving over $1,000 a month. How does that compare to what you've been able to save before making this choice? I had no savings before making this choice. <laughs> Yeah, pretty quickly in Metro Denver, if you eliminate most of your housing costs, your savings account starts to get. Correct. Um, but also, I've also been double paying my debts. So I've been making double payments on my vehicle, double payments on my motorcycle. Um, instead of a three or five year loan on those, I'll be paying them off within 12 to 16 months. What did you do with all your stuff? I sold or gave away everything I own, except for my clothing and my personal items. How do you fit everything that you need for a life, even a pared-down one, into a Jeep Compass? 
So one side is my bed. The other side I have baskets, uh, some plastic bins, and I keep all of my essentials separated. Uh, one of the things I've learned from this is it forces me to be very um, deliberate in what I use and what I don't. Uh, within the first month, I actually got rid of even more things. Like what? What uh, did you think you needed that you got rid of? Oh, I thought I needed utensils and plates and cups and uh, more shoes than I than I do need. <laughs> don't you need utensils? No, I uh, well, I do have one fork, one spoon, and one knife, but I was keeping a lot more than that. Do you have a makeshift kitchen in the Jeep? I do not, but I do have a cooler where I keep, you know, dried goods and fresh fruit and some vegetables. So do you mostly eat at restaurants then? or I try to avoid restaurants. Um, I'm lucky I work for a company where we have an on-site restaurant, although that can be expensive as well. So I do – I'll buy some groceries and I'll bring them to the office and I'll keep them in the refrigerator during the week. As we heard, you uh, pick a place to park each night and sleep. How do you decide where to stop and do you ever get – I don't know, the the police coming up and saying, what are you doing here? So it took me a little while to determine where I wanted to stay. Uh, right now I have three particular spots that, um, that work well for me. Um, one is a trailhead. Uh, every once in a while it's a friend's house outside. And, in their driveway or something? Uh, parked on the street. Mm-hmm. So I, it took me a while. You know, Walmart still allows people to stay overnight. And as of right now, I've never had anybody approach my vehicle. So you'll park in a Walmart parking lot? I will. And if I do that, I, I try to stay around the other, you can tell, the RVs, the people coming through. I'll stay close to them because they're usually, you know, retired people. Um, and, and you're a little less conspicuous that way. Where do you shower? At the gym. At the gym. Every day. All right. I do wonder if there are people who hear this and think, you know, there are any number of folks who are forced to live in their cars. Yeah. You know, for whom true homelessness has has That's driven right. this. It's not a decision. And who think, well, this sounds a bit quaint mm-hmm. um, or precious. What do, what do you say? Actually, it's, it, it's not as quaint and precious as you think. Everything does take a lot more time. I, I, I'm I in a situation where I'm able to do this by choice and when people have to do it because they've lost their job or, you know, they've been kicked out of their house, I my heart goes out to those people because it, when it's not by choice, I can see it being very, very difficult. Have you run into many others who have chosen this? I have run into a few people. Um, they do it more traveling through the country. However, I have been to a few campgrounds where I can see that um, you can tell. You can see others that are doing it. You kind of pick up on the vibe. And they're not necessarily in RVs. They're in vehicles like yours. Cars, Mm -hmm. uh, small four-door cars. I've seen vans. Yeah. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'm joined by Diane Coyce, who just recently made the decision to live in her SUV. And uh, I think you gave up your home, and it was in Parker, yeah, it was yes, it was on the Parker line. Mm-hmm. So you talked about uh, being an empty nester now. Yes, and I couldn't help but think as I prepared for the interview, um, what it would be like if I thought my mom was doing this, and how worried I'd be for her. Mm-hmm. 
Do do your kids worry about you? Yes, they do very much. Um, you know, at first they were like, "Oh, mom, you know, you, you got to be safe, and you can't let people follow you." Um, so yeah, th- there is a concern there on on their end. But you know, I've assured them that you know I'm very very careful about where I go, and you know I don't run around telling people what I do. Um, or well, how I live. Uh, uh, that used to be the case, yeah. and then you came on the <laughs> Not show anymore. Okay. <laughs> yes. So, have, have you had um, stranger danger? I have had nothing like that as of yet. We heard from that woman who calls herself Hobo Alley in the introduction. Mm-hmm. And she said that, yes, you have to be mindful of, of stranger danger, but that it's also an opportunity to connect with people. Have you found that? Yes. In fact, um, you know, before I did this lifestyle, I, you know, found myself kind of not really doing a lot socially. And this lifestyle has forced me to, in a very positive way, I've met wonderful people in wonderful places. Um, Where you park, you mean? Correct. Uh, I've, I've met people at the campground. They find out, you know, oh my gosh, you live in your car and please come to our house for a barbecue. I, I've, that's actually happened. Um, I've had a lady invite me to her home in Arkansas <laughs> to come visit anytime I want. Um, so it, yeah, it's it's afforded me uh, to, to get out and, and do things and meet people um, and have a lot of fun. Did you look into the kind of legal landscape of this about where it was okay to park and where it isn't? Honestly, I did not. Uh um, And I still have not. Um, I try to just be very, very careful and conscious of where I go. What helpful hints have you learned? I have learned to uh, always be very aware of my surroundings. you know, make sure that if if I, you know, where I park, I am at least within walking distance or I can see a light from a home or something in case something happens, mm-hmm. then I, you know, I'm close to people. Um, I've also learned to really enjoy the freedom and the liberation that has come along with this lifestyle. Of being um, with less stuff? Being with less stuff and being able to do more. I I recently spent almost a week in L.A. with my son. Uh, We went to Disneyland and Universal Studios, and that's something that I could not have afforded before. So it's allowing me financial freedom as well as, um, you know, going out and meeting people and actually doing doing things. How long do you plan on doing this? I plan on doing this until I reach my goal, which is building my tiny home. Hmm. Would you recommend it for others? I highly recommend it for people who can be by themselves that are okay with being solo, that are okay. You really, really have to be okay with being by yourself a lot. It can get boring, believe it or not. And so that's when you're forced to, okay, so where do I go next? Let's let's go check something out that we've never checked out before. And, you know, let me go eat at this restaurant I've never tried. And um, But I, I do recommend it. I recommend it for somebody that might want to save money, pay off debt. It's not forever. It's not forever. No. Uh, we got a tweet just before the broadcast from a, a guy named Kyle, I, th- I think, who lives this way. But I want to point out, he's he's 25. Mm-hmm. I think he's a, a rock climber, and he he goes from place to place where he, he'd like to climb. And at the risk of being indelicate, you're 51. I am. It's a very different complexion, I think, than than a lot of the people who choose to do this. Yes, uh, in fact, when I was doing a lot of the research before I decide 
decided to live this way, I realized that the vast majority of people who choose this lifestyle are much younger. Mm. I was just thinking about ballots being in the mail. Where do you get your mail? So uh, the USPS now allows for you to have an actual physical address instead of a P.O. box. So that's what I I got. And you pick your mail up. I pick my mail up once a week. Hmm. Do colleagues at your work know about this? Some of my colleagues do know, yes. Mm -hmm. What do they think? Well, they're they're not surprised. <laughs> oh, okay. But um, they're all very supportive. They just they think it's fabulous. Thanks for being with us. Thank you very much for having me, Ryan. Do, do you know where you'll sleep tonight? I do. You do. Uh huh. So six weeks ago, Diane Coyce of Metro Denver made the decision to live in her car, and we'd like to hear from other Coloradans who've chosen to live in non-traditional dwellings. I heard recently of a man who lives in a tent. Email us news at cpr.org, news at cpr.org, and share your story. We'll be right back with fresh allegations that VA clinics have fudged wait times. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Veterans in this state have had to wait a long time for health care, according to a whistleblower who came forward recently. And VA staff tried to cover it up, the whistleblower says. Now the department's internal watchdog will look into the claims. If you're having deja vu, it's because more than two years ago, there were similar allegations at a VA clinic in Phoenix which led the head of the VA to resign. Dan Elliott of the Associated Press is covering this story, and he's on the phone. Dan, welcome to the program. Thank you. And let's start with this new inquiry, which the VA's inspector general announced. What allegations will they look into precisely? Well, a a whistleblower um, has said that uh, there's actually two two phases, two elements to this. One, uh, that uh, VA clinics uh, in Denver and Golden and Colorado Springs had, um, I guess, what would best be described as unofficial uh, wait lists, that they were using some kind of list uh, other than the official uh, approved VA list, uh, which is called the electronic wait list. The other allegation uh, brought forward by this whistleblower is that a uh, veteran who was awaiting treatment for PTSD at the Colorado Springs Clinic um, uh, took his own life and um, that uh, afterward uh, some uh, some records in that clinic uh, were altered. Uh, More than that, at this point, officially, we don't know. That's all that the, uh, the inspector general has said. Records were altered. Uh, it might be speculation, but, but in the interest of making the case look better than it was or something? Um, that would be one uh, reasonable interpretation uh, of, of the uh, of the allegation. Uh, but like I say, you know, at this point, we know very little officially on okay. the record other than the fact that the uh, uh, two senators, one from Colorado, Cory Gardner, one from Wisconsin, uh, Ron Johnson, asked the IG to investigate. And uh, that was about three weeks ago or four weeks ago. And then last week, the IG said, OK, yes, we will investigate. What do you know about the whistleblower? Um, that's an interesting question, Ryan. And and um, 
Uh, I don't want to be coy, but uh, I, I've spoken to a number of people in in this case, uh, uh, and some some of them we've quoted on the record, some we haven't. Uh, the ones we haven't quoted yet, uh, there's sort of a vetting process that we go through. Uh, and this is a story that's kind of coming out in, in drips and drabs, and, and we're catching it as it as it comes along. So uh, I apologize for not being forthcoming on this question, uh, but uh, there are things I've been told things I've spoken to people that I'm, we haven't decided are worth are uh, not uh, worth is the wrong word we haven't decided yet uh, that uh, you know that, that they've gotten through our vetting process that that we can publish it and and I wouldn't want to say something on your airwaves that you know that we haven't published yet uh, uh, at the AP. All right. Uh, the sensitivity around whistleblower cases, of course. Exactly. Yeah. And I'll say it's yeah. no sure thing that these allegations mean there were violations. Another IG report found no violations when it looked at different clinics in a report released earlier this year. But this isn't the first sign of something fishy at Colorado's VA clinics. Back in February, you reported the results of a different inquiry by the inspector general. It found that staff at that Colorado Springs clinic claimed 59 veterans got appointments sooner than they actually did. And at least 288 veterans had to wait longer than the government's target of 30 days to get an appointment. So considering that finding, uh, is is this a pattern, do you think, in terms of uh, cover-ups at these VA clinics or two sets of books? You know, it's 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 interesting, and and we don't know how extensive it is because we're we're entirely dependent either on whistleblowers or or inspectors general reports to tell us. Um, uh, but yes, it it has surfaced in Colorado as well as elsewhere. And the interesting thing to me is that um, you know here we are two years uh, out, more than two years after the. Uh, initial uh, revelations in Phoenix, and, and new allegations continue to, to pop up. Uh, so um, a, a pattern, I, yeah, you might be able to use uh, that word. It seems to be hit or miss. There's no um, no uh, sort of uh, clues that I've seen that say in this, you know, you're more likely to have it in this kind of clinic than that. Uh, but, but yeah, it, it continues to pop up. Uh, two years on, uh, which is surprising, at least to me. I will say that uh, in April of 2015, the AP analyzed wait times across the country and did find that Colorados are worse than average. You say Mm -hmm. it's surprising to you. I wonder if part of the reason it's surprising is that after the Phoenix case, uh, there were some changes that basically allowed uh, patients of the VA, if they couldn't get an appointment soon enough, to go to an outside provider and, right. You know, the obvious question is, why not just go to an outside provider? Why would the VA feel that it had to continue to have two sets of books, you know? You know, there there, there are, I can think of a number of, of possible reasons, and, and, and all of them would just be uh, speculative. Uh, uh, what we do know from the Phoenix case is that there were uh, the, the books uh, uh, were apparently being fudged uh, in order to make uh, the VA look better, make specific individuals within the VA uh, look better. Um, it's it's also possible um, that um, some of the people in the VA, for, for whatever reasons, uh, don't want uh, uh, patients to go outside the VA system. 
and into the into the private sector, which you were referring to the Veterans Choice Program, which uh, allows a veteran after if they haven't been seen within 30 days, they can see a, a provider outside the VA system uh, at government expense. Um, and you know there might be a variety of reasons for that uh, too. I mean, I. I uh, I have met a number of of people in the VA system and uh, and providers, and I'm sure that like with any healthcare system, there are, there are good people uh, as well as uh, some some bad actors. So, uh, but it's you know it's interesting to note that anecdotally, at least the veterans, most of the veterans I talk to like the care they get within the VA system, and they they want to stay within the VA system. The issue is how long it takes them to get in to get that care. Uh, and that's and I, and that's interesting because your local findings on that really reflect the national trend, which is that though the perception might be of a of an embattled B, VA right now, patients generally like the care they get. When you ask the individual, yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. And and uh, you know these are these are not uh, uh, folks that I, I think for the most part are going to say, oh, that's fine, whatever. I'll I'll just take a you know mediocre care. I think they're going to be pretty picky about it. And and that's telling to me. And again, I can't, you know, I can't claim that what I know about this is representative, but anecdotally, not all, but most of the veterans I talk to like the care that they get. Uh, some some have high praise for the care they get. It's just how long it takes them to get in. Hmm. Uh, and this is what NPR has found in its reporting nationwide. Uh, you can listen to some of that reporting from Quill Lawrence at NPR. Uh, what has been the VA's response to why some veterans don't get care within the the 30-day period as they're supposed to? Um, there, in, in Colorado, at least, um, uh, some of the things they say, uh, that Colorado has experienced huge growth in its veteran population, and, and that is especially true of Colorado Springs. Uh, the Springs is a very attractive city uh, to veterans. It's uh, some were, were stationed there. Uh, I, I understand that the, the uh, facilities there are considered very desirable assignments in the military, and, and a lot of people want to go back there when they retire. So there is an outsized um, veteran population there. Uh, the VA says that that uh, it, like every other healthcare provider, is having trouble attracting. Um, uh, doctors and nurses and clinicians and that kind of thing. So, mm. uh, you know, there there are those those are the official factors uh, that that they cite. Gosh, I remember a story we did just a few months ago about communities in Colorado that are specifically courting veterans and saying, "Come here, we want you." Uh, so that that might speak to the magnetism that mm-hmm. veterans feel to Colorado as well with concerted efforts like this. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how much accountability would you say there's been since 2014, since the Phoenix cases? Well, that's a that's a, a, a hot topic, uh, and I haven't done any research on it myself. Uh, I have to rely on other people's reporting, uh, but the reports I have seen uh, indicate that there hasn't been a lot of uh, not a lot of people have have been fired or demoted or 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 paid uh, any any kind of price for these at least not as many uh as you might expect and and that's uh, that's an issue that a lot of members of congress bring up with the VA not just in regard to um the wait lists and healthcare but with the uh the cost overruns at the hospital uh, in Aurora um uh there are a number of members of congress who are upset that 
uh, uh, the VA, in, the, in their view, simply isn't doing enough to discipline uh, people responsible for big mistakes. Mm. I was surprised to see that after the initial scandal broke in 2014, an audit from the VA estimated that 60% of VA facilities were likely gaming the system. What's the timeline yeah. for the, for the yeah. inquiry announced last week into these three Colorado facilities? I'll remind people it's Denver, Golden, and Colorado Springs. I don't think any timeline has been announced. In in my experience, these reports take months rather than weeks. They they can take the better part of, of a year. Um, generally speaking, IG reports across the federal government are, are pretty thorough. They can they can run from forty pages into the hundred, two hundred pages, and they do on site visits and they look at uh, they interview people and they uh, review records, and, and uh, it's it's a pretty extensive process. A story you'll continue to follow, and we might check back in with you. Dan, thanks so much. Thank you. Dan Elliott, reporter for the Associated Press in Denver, covering the military and the VA. We talked about a new inquiry into wait times at some Colorado clinics. This is a pivotal time for the presidential campaigns in Colorado. With ballots being mailed now, the focus shifts from persuading voters to collecting their votes. CPR's Megan Verlee has a look at the ground game. Hey, Scott. My name is Lisa, and I'm a first-time volunteer calling from the Trump campaign headquarters in Jefferson County. Weekends are a busy time at the Trump campaign office in Lakewood. Volunteers work the phones, calling for additional help for the critical weeks ahead. Okay, that would be great. Thanks so much, Scott. Woohoo, I got somebody. In many states, get out the vote efforts are an election day sprint. Here in Colorado, all mail voting has turned election season into a three week marathon. The Secretary of State's office puts out daily updates on returned ballots, and campaigns can pay for more detailed voter data. That allows their armies of door-knocking, phone-dialing volunteers to keep making contact until each voter turns in their ballot. These people have their ballots on their kitchen tables, so it's making sure that that turns into a vote for us. Ali Pardo is the Republican National Committee's communications director in Colorado. The RNC has had a full-time presence in the state for the past four years. Pardo says they've identified potential voters and cultivated relationships with them. What we're doing now is making sure that everything that we've built to, that foundation that we've been laying on the ground since 2013, is really in full motion and ready to go. Much has been made of the Obama campaign's field operations in 2008 and 2012, how they married data mining with massive on-the-ground organizing to turn out their voters. Pardo says Republicans were outmaneuvered, but she points to Cory Gardner's successful 2014 Senate campaign as proof that GOP strategists have caught up. And the operation they built did a fantastic job of getting those ballots and turning them in. We're looking to do that same thing now in the presidential. Colorado's move to all-mail ballots is a bit of a wild card in this year's election. Republican lawmakers originally fought the change, fearful it could help drive up Democratic turnout. But the first time around in 2014, Republican candidates did quite well, as they often do in off-year elections. That result doesn't surprise University of Wisconsin political science professor Barry Burden. I have not seen any studies suggesting a big partisan difference in the outcome when vote-by-mail was introduced. Burden researches voting systems. He says mail ballots don't increase voter turnout much. But the research is inconclusive, and those studies mostly come from Oregon and Washington, safely Democratic states. 
which means a lot of people are watching Colorado closely this year. What's going to be different in Colorado is that Colorado is a swing state. And so what we haven't seen yet is a state with an aggressive vote-by-mail strategy and really intense campaigning going on at the same time. And Colorado will provide that test for us. Privately, some Democratic strategists worry the move to mail ballots could work against them. That's because Latinos and millennials, two groups the party relies on, tend to be pretty mobile. Ballots don't get forwarded to new addresses, so people who move and forget to update their voter registration could be out of luck. To prevent that, the Clinton campaign is keeping close track of its supporters. I'm Eddie. I'm Nala. Nice to meet you, Nala. I'm the campus organizer here. Clinton staffer Eddie Thomas works his way through tables of lunching students on Denver's Auraria campus. He asks if they're registered and if their addresses are up to date. And then, if they say yes to both those questions. Can I get you to fill out one of these? This is how, like, I'm going to be able to say, like, hey, make sure you turn in that ballot. Our goal is to really be as many places as possible. Emmy Ruiz is the Clinton campaign's Colorado director. She says volunteers have been hunting for voters everywhere from grocery store parking lots to hiking trails to cyberspace. We're doing a lot of work online. So, for example, Facebook Live. We're also registering voters via text message. And we've seen a lot of really encouraging results there. And for the first time in decades, the number of active Democratic voters in Colorado has surpassed the number of registered Republicans. State Democratic Party Chair Rick Palacio says all the energy now is on convincing those voters to return their ballots as soon as possible. And his main pitch to them is likely to resonate with Coloradans of all political persuasions. Your telephone calls are going to stop. Your door knocks are going to stop if you turn your ballot back in. Both parties boast of record-breaking organizing efforts this year. So voters who wait to return their ballots are likely to be the focus of a lot of campaign attention between now and November 8th. I'm Megan Verley, CPR News. Coming up, an animated film whose creation boggles the mind. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Vincent van Gogh once wrote, We cannot speak other than by our paintings. It was in a letter shortly before his death. A new film takes those words literally. Loving Vincent is animated entirely with oil paintings, about 64,000 of them. It's the first production of its kind. And let that sink in for a second. 64,000 oil paintings. I could barely wrap my own mind around it. In all, it took 115 different painters to get the job done. One of them is Dina Peterson of Monument, outside Colorado Springs. She has just returned from Poland, where she worked on the film for several months. Dina, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here. So help me understand how 100 or so artists animate a film with oil paintings on canvas? What's the, what's the process? It's an amazingly complex process, and yet in some ways um, it, it's simple too. Um, the process is a little hard to describe, but um, it's an interesting juxtaposition between technology and things that are not so technical. Um, we would paint in a workstation. They, would, they had an acronym for it called PAWS, which is Painted Animation Workstation. Okay. This is so, like a cubicle or something? Yeah, it's a little cubicle, built of drywall. You know, all these little cubicles are in this big warehouse of a studio in Gdansk, Poland. And you have the 115 were, painters in there. Yeah, yeah. There were two other studios. One was in Greece. One was in southern Poland. Um, so we each had a little cubicle with a dark curtain on it because we use a software program that's called Dragon Frame that helps you animate. And that's used with a projector that's behind us 
um, and and the lighting is set just so, so that each time we paint a frame, um, we then take a picture of what we just painted, and we make an export of it. Um, so is it like oil painting tracing of an image that's already created digitally? Or yes. are you originating the image in paint? It's kind of both. Okay. Um, we, we do have um, projected images of the actors that were filmed live or in front of a green screen. Oh. Some of them were filled, filmed in front of uh, um, Van Gogh's actual paintings being projected behind them. And so we would take these images that they prepared for us. Um, we They would slow down the, the actual movement of the actor so that um, we would paint basically every two frames. So, you know, you're kind of you're kind of tracing, but the projector lies a lot, and there's not a lot of information there about color at all. So you get to add some, I don't know, I guess impressionistic elements. In some ways. Although what was interesting about this is um, the whole process was really geared towards mimicking Van Gogh's style uh-huh. and at the same time making the actor look like what he or she looks like. So um, they were very specific um, about what they wanted from us. So we had to really completely get rid of our own style and and really look into painting someone else's style, which was a difficult thing to do as an artist. Could you do a, a mean fake Van Gogh now? <laughs> I thought about that actually. <laughs> like we're creating a whole bunch of little forgers. Right. Um, pretty, but we did pretty well with that because we would be actually studying his actual paintings. We didn't have the actual paintings. We had high resolution images of them, although I've seen them in person. And you do, you get down and you zero in on actual brush strokes and what color are they and um you know when he painted he 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 painted i'm imagining just kind of very vigorously and emotionally um grabbing paint and and when you study his his brush work it's several colors on one brush stroke because you know you're not cleaning your palette which in some ways is how i like to paint but when you're trying to reproduce that it's tough because there's a spontaneity there that i feel can't truly be reproduced so once you painted, the image would be captured and added, obviously, to the film. Would you keep the painting you made? Are that, there are there the 64,000 most... oil paintings up exactly. for sale now? No, no, there aren't, because that was the interesting piece of this. We would paint the first frame, which was called the key frame, or the first frame. We would paint the background. Um, it, it usually had something to do with one of his original pieces. Okay. Like one of my favorite scenes that I did was a wheat field with crows, which is thought to be maybe one of his last paintings done in July of 1890. Um, And then we had the character Armand, who's sort of the main character of the film, in there. And he throws a stick and the crows fly away. It's a really cool scene. You start out with the first frame. You paint the the field and the sky. The crows are in the wheat, so you don't see them. You paint him getting ready to do what he's going to do. And then the interesting piece of that is you take a picture of that, and then two frames later into the, his movement of getting ready to throw the stick, I'm scraping him off of that painting and repainting him in a different position and painting all the background stuff that was there when he moved. You have to replace all those brush strokes. Um, and then you take a picture of that and so on. So you basically end up with him in a different place. And then the crows are all in the sky. And so in that way, paintings would be reused. Canvas. Yes. Same canvas. Right, right, yeah. right. One of the directors, British filmmaker Hugh Welchman, told us that the final film would be 93 minutes long. Mm-hmm. So how many paintings did it take to animate, say, one minute of footage? 
Well, one second of footage took 12 paintings for one second. So you imagine that's why it took, what, 64,000 for, you know, 80, 90 minutes of film. It's amazing. It's mind-boggling. I don't think they can ever do this again. I'm really not sure they could do it. I think one of them said they're not going, there's no way that they're going to do it again. I don't think they even realized what it was going to involve. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Dina Peterson, who's an artist from Monument outside of Colorado Springs. She just returned uh, over the weekend from Poland, where she was working on a new film called Loving Vincent. It's about Vincent van Gogh, and it's an animated film done entirely with oil paintings. Dina was one of about 115 painters to contribute to the project. And did you develop any kind of relationship with the other painters? Yeah, as much as I could. You know, we were awfully busy. We would come in 8.30 maybe in the morning and and stay there for about 10 hours and and maybe a half hour for lunch. I'd get a chance to chat with some of the other artists, all international artists from all over the world. Um, But not as much as I would have liked to because we were working really hard and we were – really literally just exhausted at the end of the day. Does your hand get sore? Do your eyes get sore? Yes, both. (laughs) Yeah, I tried to get up and stretch during the day and remember to stretch out my hands and shoulders and intense work. You tried out for this? Yes, I sent a portfolio. It was just kind of a whim. Um, I'd seen the trailer going around on Facebook. Um, We have that at cprnews.org, by the way. It will give you a sense for the visual Oh, goodness, layering. the It's pretty stunning. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, so you'd seen that and wanted to be a part of it. Yeah, I thought, well, you know, they said they were still looking for artists. And so just on a whim, I sent them a link to my website. And I thought, well, I just didn't think I'd hear anything about it. I figured they were close to being done. And why would they want someone from Colorado to come over there and help with it? And I got an email early in May that said, we'd like you to come and take a test to see if you'd like to be a part of this. I, apparently, there were over... About 8,000 people sent uh, portfolios or websites. So to be chosen from that was pretty pretty nice. So you went to Poland not even at the promise of having the job, but of right. maybe having the job. Right. Okay, and then got chosen. Yes. Do you have a favorite Van Gogh painting? And maybe it's not one you necessarily painted yourself. Yeah. Oh, my, I think that's really tough. Um, I do think the Wheatfield with Crows is one of my favorites. But, um, gosh, he's had so many. I, there, there was one in the exhibit that was in Denver a couple years ago. Yeah, that's right. Um, and it was just a little painting of some willow trees with the sun coming through behind them. I think that's, that's one of my favorites. So you mentioned earlier that you had to suppress your own artistic um, uh, expression in some regards to do this somewhat factory-like work. Has it has it helped you as an artist, though, maybe refine your technique? I think it has. Um, I think as many of us were talking, when we go back home to, to do our own work, we were kind of worried that this actually might interfere with being able to kind of do our own work again. <laughs> um, I don't think that's the case. I think your painting style is a lot like your handwriting. I, I just think you, you can't really change it, even when you try. Um, so it was harder, really, to paint like Van Gogh. Um, what is your style? I'd say it's kind of impressionistic realism, might call it that. Landscape, portrait? Yeah, I do more landscapes, maybe animals, still life, than portraits. Mm-hmm. So I was doing more portraits for this than I'm used to. Two of the scenes I did were actually full-on portraits of characters. Um, 
But I think anytime you're painting for nine hours every day, it's it's great. I mean, the, the, my drawing skills, I think, have greatly improved. Um, the ability to match the colors you're looking at um, and, and studying the brushwork it was amazing. It was a great opportunity, and I think I'm definitely improved from that. What's fascinating is it sounds like a process that you had to do really quickly, but I think of oil as something that takes a really long time to dry. Yes, absolutely. How does that work? Well, we did mix um, a couple of different types of oils with the paint to keep it from drying. Um, But, you know, the fact that it didn't dry fast was probably helpful because it was much easier to take it off then and kind of move the paint around and and reapply it. So it really worked out just fine, and really there was no need to touch the paintings. We just take a photo of it, basically, and that's what you see in the movie. Uh, did did this make you a rich woman, this, this job? <laughs> Sorry to laugh. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> not. I think the money that I put out to get over there and to live there. To Poland. Yes. I'm still going to be in debt for a little while for that, but they did pay us something. I think they probably paid us enough that we could, you know, live, have a place to live and eat while we were there. I think it just about broke us even that way. Thanks so much for being with us. It was a pleasure being here. Thank you for having me. Any sense of when the film comes out? You know, they're hoping to finish by the end of this month and um, maybe release it um, by the end of the year, hopefully. Okay, and you can watch a trailer, as we said, and a behind-the-scenes video at cprnews.org. You heard there Dina Peterson. She's a painter in Monument, Colorado. Coming up, we pivot from this conversation with an artist to a story about how the arts are funded in Metro Denver. Voters have a decision to make this election. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. On free days, cultural institutions in Metro Denver waive their admissions. They say they're able to do that because of an existing cultural taxing district. CPR arts reporter Corey Jones did some digging to see if that's really true, and he spoke with Mike Lamp. Corey, what did you find out? Well, we'll talk more about free days in a second. But first, I've been looking into the Scientific and Cultural Facilities District, or SCFD. That's because during this election, it's up for renewal in seven Denver metro counties. To fill you in, Mike, SCFD generates money from a sales and use tax that equals one penny for every $10 spent. And that money helps support a couple of hundred organizations like museums and botanic gardens. Exactly. Now, one of the things that some of these groups tout are free days. For example, this Monday is a free day at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Friday evenings are free at the Clifford Still Museum. And every first Saturday is free at the Denver Art Museum. And that's where one of our online readers, Robert Chase went recently. And we heard from this reader, and what did he say? Well, Chase commented that he was surprised to see that the free day was also sponsored by Toyota. He wondered if the museum misleads the public with its SCFD messaging. So we asked Christy Bassiner about this. She's the Denver Art Museum's Director of Communication. Bassiner says the museum offers free days and events thanks to multiple funders, and that includes SCFD, which provides general support for operations. It enables us to provide world-class programming. It enables us to preserve our collections, and it enables us to provide access to the public in a way that we might not be able to do without these dollars. So this is a little murky. There's no specific amount of SCFD funding that is tied to free admissions, but Bassiner says it does help make them happen. I also asked her if voters don't extend the cultural tax district, would free days go away? She said she doesn't think so, but they'd have to discuss it. 
So why do organizations offer free days? For a couple reasons. On the one hand, it entices first-time visitors, but the organizations also hope to reach people who otherwise couldn't afford tickets. I met one such group at Denver's Molly Brown House recently, Girl Scout Troop 67497. And it turns out that troop leader Lisa Kinsella keeps track of all the free days. She says this is a new troop that doesn't charge dues and hasn't earned any money yet. If we didn't do this by free days, we wouldn't be able to afford to come and do all these things and earn our badges. For the record, the five girls I met got their historic home tour badge. Now, on this day, the Molly Brown House let in around 100 people for free, but there was also a catch. You had to be from one of the seven counties that make up the SCFD. So that's another discovery. Organizations make up their own rules when it comes to free days. And does the SCFD require groups to offer free days? Actually, they don't. In fact, when you look at SCFD's free day calendar online, it has some listings for groups that are free year-round. For example, The Museum of Outdoor Arts in Inglewood has five free days listed in October, but you can visit the museum without a ticket whenever it's open. And that leads me to John Caldera of the Independence Institute. That's a free market think tank in Denver. He's against the cultural tax district, and he believes the free days are a publicity stunt. Caldera says many working class people can't afford to take these days off from work. It's rather patronizing. Maybe the thing to do is let them keep their money, and if they choose to go to the zoo, that's what they can do with their money. And what does the SCFD say about that point of view? Well, we took Caldera's claim to Peg Long, who is SCFD's executive director, and here's what she said about free days. It's very pervasive. It's very genuine. From my perspective, it's giving back to the community. It's making sure that the public experiences a return on its investment. So even though SCFD does not require free days, this cultural tax district stands by the merits of these days. Corey Jones, his arts reporter at CPR, is speaking there with Mike Lamp about SCFD free days. And to be clear, CPR and other public media outlets don't get SCFD funding. But you can see a full list of the organizations that do at CPRnews.org. We came across an interesting tidbit through Reddit, the online community. There's a tree along Mount Galbraith Trail near Golden with a nameplate nailed to it. It says Plato. One Reddit user thought it might be a pet's grave. Another said, no, I think it's a state champion tree or a notable tree. Some are marked this way. Still another user remembered having a long conversation with a ranger once who said unique trees indeed got names from the scientists who studied them. So we wanted to know, is Plato some sort of champion tree? Katie Matthews is spokeswoman at Jefferson County Open Space, which maintains the trail. Jeffco Open Space was actually not aware that this plaque was on the tree. It will actually need to be removed because it is in violation of our regulation regarding the destruction of natural or cultural resources. Which apparently carries a $125 fine. But couldn't the plaque be grandfathered in? I mean, it looks like it's been there a while. Um, we, we actually wouldn't make an, an exception for that. Once nails are hammered into a tree, it makes the tree more susceptible to disease. And bark is the tree's protection. And anytime you remove bark or cut into it, you're breaching its armor, basically. And also from a visitor experience standpoint, while it had meaning to the person who put it there, it doesn't have meaning to other park visitors. And people come to open space parks to enjoy nature in its purest state. So we may have killed fun today, but we helped a tree. 
As an aside, the nonprofit Colorado Tree Coalition does recognize notable trees, but they never nail a plaque to the trunk. The deadline for 2017 nominations is December 1st. There's a link at cprnews.org. Finally today, you very likely have received your ballot by now. Heck, you may have already sent it back. But if you haven't, and you have questions about any of the statewide measures, from universal health care to making it harder to amend the state constitution, email us, news at cpr.org. We'll put our reporters and producers on the case. So your questions about statewide measures, news at cpr.org. And that's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner at CPR News.